Hello, hello. I'm Katie, and welcome to Retromate, your pop culture rewind. I am breaking the rules a little bit today. I'm going to go all the way back to 1979, and I'm flying solo. Due to a scheduling conflict, I need to pivot from the original planned movie, and then I plan to combine two of Patrick Swayze's early roles into one episode. But after watching today's film, I realized that it actually needed its own episode. Before this week, I'd actually never seen it. But we have to talk about Patrick Swayze's first movie role, Skate Town, USA. I know, I know. You might be tempted to tune out, but I do urge you to stick with me. Yes, it's campy. No, it's not well known. Yes, it's a roller disco musical comedy, but Patrick's performance is absolutely the reason to tune in. I know I've mentioned Patrick's book in previous episodes of Retromade. So today, it being the first episode focused on Patrick Swayze and his first role, I do want to point out his book. So I own it. originally got it from the library. And then after I read it, I realized it was so good. I ordered it. So it's called The Time of My Life by Patrick Swayze and his wife, Lisa Niemi. And I want to showcase this. It is written, I think, in, um, I think the copyright's 2009, which is also the year, I believe, that Patrick passed away. So it was completed shortly before he passed away. And I'll have little tidbits of the book throughout this season, obviously focused on Patrick Swayze, but it really is good, especially if you're a Patrick Swayze fan. I highly recommend you check it out. So I did want to point that out. It's really good. And I know I've mentioned that many times. So there we go. Okay. Now, one of the things that I wanted to do before we get into our time capsule today and the movie, I have requested feedback in my episodes from listeners and viewers. So I want to showcase some of those. We're going to start with the first episode, Big Trouble in Little China. And there are some YouTube comments that I wanted to point out. The first being from Melinda Davis. She says, love this movie, but it makes more sense if you realize that Kurt was the sidekick. Wang was the actual hero of the movie. Kurt Russell and Carpenter did the commentary uh, on the DVD, and it's really interesting. Melinda, thank you very much for your comment. And next time I watch Big Trouble in Little China, I will be sure to watch it with that commentary on. I bet it is super interesting. So thank you. The next comment we have is from Andreas Wallars. He says, I'll settle this right now. Russell and Swayze look similar because growing up, I had a man crush on both of them. Thank you so much, Andreas. I'm glad that somebody can see it. Everyone else, you have to you have to chime in, please. They look alike, very similar. And then he goes on to say, first Russell experience for me was Tango and Cash. The bad cop, worst cop line was funny. First Swayze experience was a television series called North and South, which was really popular in Scandinavia. Great trip down memory lane. Thank you, Katie. Tombstone is my favorite Russell movie, too. My cousin and I watched it about 100 times on VCR. I'm jealous that Ryan got to watch it on the big screen. I'm a huge fan of Westerns, so you bet I'm going to tune in to your Western podcast. Uh, The Western podcast that he's referencing is Ryan, my co-host, who I also do one more round with. In the future, he's going to be doing a Western podcast. So Andreas is going to be tuning into that. And I am actually really shocked that North and South was popular in Scandinavia, just given that it's a civil war drama uh, in the United States. But I'm glad to hear it. And yes, we will be covering that later this season. 
Murdoch's Music Minute commented, I think I've seen the movie once or twice on TV, and it's really bizarre in an entertaining way. Agreed. He asks, will you do Escape from New York too? Oh, and Ryan brought me here, by the way. So thanks, Ryan, for bringing Murdoch's Music Minute. And thank you for commenting and for joining the Bond Murdoch's Music Minute. Yes, we will absolutely be doing Escape from New York. So stay tuned for the rest of uh, season one, focused on our ultimate everyman, Kurt Russell and Patrick Swayze. He goes on to say, I loved Alf and the Muppet Babies, but rewatching it nowadays, well, most Alf episodes didn't age too well. Again, thanks for the comment. And yeah, that does not surprise me. A lot of things don't age well. But thank you for commenting about some of the TV shows and cartoons that we brought up in that episode. Then Marsha, my mom, commented on Facebook, great first episode, really enjoyed it. However, Ryan's take on Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury almost broke my heart. You two have very contrasting views on several subjects, making this quite interesting to listen to. So Angela Lansbury in... Murder, She Wrote was one of the top Nielsen-rated TV shows of the time when we covered Big Trouble in Little China. So Ryan was poking fun at it. And I had mentioned on an episode that I recall my mom really liking that show. So she chimed in as well. And then also, for those of you who listened to that episode, if you haven't, go back and check out the Big Trouble in Little China episode where I brought up that it was interesting how the 80s have us feeling that truckers back in the day were super hot because Jack Burton is a trucker. And also we have Over the Top with Sylvester Sloan, which is cringy to Ryan. He hates it for some reason. So at every opportunity, I bring it up that I think it's amazing in a bad way, but it's amazing. Also, Sylvester Sloan's super hot in it. And so both of my sisters backed me up on that front on Facebook regarding Over the Top being terrible, but amazing. Big shocker. We all grew up lovingly watching that movie. So then some comments from the Tango and Cash episode. Andreas Wollars, he's commenting about the tripod theory. There's a shower scene, which is amazing in Tango and Cash. And so there's there's jokes. So he says, regarding the tripod theory, me and some friends had way back, Cash starts off by implying Tango has a tiny dick. The peewee remark, which sets off a bunch of dick insults back and forth. Tripod implies Tango's equipment is so small, it looks like a third testicle. <laughs> At least that's the theory we had about that joke. It doesn't really work, but it's the only explanation that sort of fits with the earlier insults. Agreed. We have to go with something, and this is as good as any. So thank you so much, Andreas. We'll go with the tripod theory that you bring up. Murdoch's Music Minute also comments uh, for Tango and Cash on YouTube. It's been a long time since I've watched Tango and Cash. I had it on VHS, taped from TV. And quite enjoyed it. I have the impression that this kind of action cinema has run its course. There is stuff around still like Fast and Furious, but by and large, classic action movies or action comedies are not really produced at the moment. The whole idea of tough guys living through absurd, dangerous plots with tons of stunts is out of fashion. Yeah, I think you're right about this. I hope that as with fashion, it finds its way back around at some point. If not, or in the meantime, it's nostalgic for us and it makes it all the more fun because we don't get it now. Thank you for the comment. And then one last comment, uh, and this one is from Facebook and it's Stephanie, who's my sister. She says, I need to rewatch. They are in their prime indeed. I had brought up that I think that Tango and Cash is worth watching just to see these two guys in their prime. And so she agrees. 
As for the music artists, she says, I totally remember that Phil Collins song that I brought up in that episode. But I was thinking Tiffany or Debbie Gibson or even Madonna from that time period. And I agree. I think they were all hot, just maybe didn't make the top 10 billboards for that particular week. But thank you for commenting. And uh, I would like to invite everyone else to please continue the conversation. I'm constantly posing questions and hoping that there are others that have similar thoughts and feelings as me. Or if you differ, that's great too. I would love to hear it. So please continue the comment. Moving on. Now let's open the time capsule, shall we? October 1979. So yours truly was not yet born. But many of these shows, songs, references are still familiar to me, as we'll get into why that might be in a, in a moment. So according to Nielsen ratings, the popular TV in 1979, in October, were Three's Company. Come and knock on our door. Come and knock on our door. We've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. Which, obviously, again, this was before my time, but I have very vivid memories of watching Three's Company all through my childhood and still do. And I think part of why that is, is there were TV networks on cable that showed syndicated shows. Nowadays, obviously, I don't have cable anymore. I have digital antennas and a uh, Roku TV. So the ways that I watch these shows now, so there's the point two digital version of some nostalgia channels. For example, Cozy TV is uh, NBC's division. So here, that's channel 9.2, if you watch that on cable, or I happen to have a digital antenna. And in a similar vein, there's MeTV, Antenna TV, Bounce TV, Grit, Comet, Laugh, which is L-A-F-F, plus all of the Roku classic TV channels, Pluto, and Tubi probably have similar channels for old TV and music as well. So I'm probably missing a ton. How are all of you watching these classic gems? Please let me know. Alice was also in the top Nielsen ratings. MASH, which was a huge show back in the day. And I can very vividly recall the theme song coming on. However, I don't think I've actually seen an entire episode of MASH before. I know it's a little before my time. And for some reason, I just, I never caught on. I feel like when the, that theme song came on, it was time to, to turn to another channel or maybe it was time for me to do homework or something, but I missed out on MASH apparently. There was uh, Dallas, Flo, the Jeffersons. I think Flo might be, is that a spinoff of the Jeffersons perhaps? I'm unfamiliar with Flo. The Dukes of Hazard, One Day at a Time with Valerie Bertinelli. I think there was also somewhat recently a remake of that show. I don't really remember watching it at the time. All I remember is the the super guy in the apartment. I'm forgetting his name, but he always had like a, a white t-shirt rolled up with a pack of cigarettes, maybe. He was the handyman or the super. At any rate, that's the show I remember him from, I believe. Also, we have Archie Bunker's Place, Eight is Enough, and Taxi. So on the taxi front, that's one that I'm just starting to watch actually on one of these, either it's MeTV or Cozy TV or one of those. It probably actually ended before I was born. I, I can't recall what year that ran through, but there was something about the feel of it that clearly didn't catch my attention as a kid. But now that I'm older, 
I'm recognizing there's tons of people in the cast that I really like. So watching those is awesome, especially Tony Danza from Who's the Boss. I loved Who's the Boss. I like Tony Danza, just generally speaking. So Taxi, that kind of rounds out our popular TV of the time in terms of primetime TV, I should say. Let's move on to cartoons. As I'm learning from researching for the show, there were a lot of cartoons that I'm going to leave out because it seems like they just threw things at the wall at this time. There were a lot of very short-lived shows that you might not remember or weren't good enough. So I'm not going to waste our time on those. I'm just going to bring up the ones that are standouts. So again, this is 1979. The New Adventures of Mighty Mouse, Spider-Woman, Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo. On this front, I'm a huge Scooby-Doo fan. Always have been the the original show and then all. There's several spinoffs. And then over the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, there's been a resurgence of Scooby-Doo with the live action. Freddie Prince Jr., I think, and Matthew Lillard as Shaggy. And probably some newer cartoons. At any rate, in these newer renditions, Scrappy-Doo is made to be super annoying. And there's a running joke that Scrappy-Doo is super annoying, but I don't actually recall the original Scrappy-Doo being all that annoying. He's just Scooby's nephew. So I remember liking Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo. I also recall there being a cousin in one of the shows. Maybe it was the original. Scooby-Dum. Does anyone remember Scooby-Dum? And he was dumb. He was a gray dog with a, with a sweatband around his head. And yeah, just a dim-witted dog. Also, I'm a big fan of Great Danes, so that that tracks with Scooby-Doo. And I had mentioned in a previous episode that I wondered where Captain Caveman was in, in the mix, and he's here. I guess he's just in older shows than I recall. So 1979, Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels. Also, Laugh Olympics, Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner Show, an all-new Popeye Hour, the new Fat Albert Show, the Daffy Duck Show, Fred and Barney Meet the Schmoo. Now, I love the Flintstones as well. And like I was mentioning, it seems like at this time, they would take an episode and with a character and just kind of make a spinoff and see whether it landed or not. So that's sort of what I thought this was. I was thinking that the Shmoo was that alien. Maybe he was Zazu or something. There was an alien that they did a few episodes in the Flintstones with. That's not the case. When I looked it up, I thought it was that. But it's actually a a 90-minute Saturday morning animated package show and a spinoff of the original series, The Flintstones, produced by Hanna-Barbera, which aired on NBC from December 8th, 1979 to November 15th, 1980. So this clearly was one of those short-lived. But the schmoo, it's just a package show. There's no crossover, actually. That was a thing. Um, Like Heathcliff was that way. Like the first bit was Heathcliff and then it was kind of the ragamuffin type gang. Do you guys remember these package shows? Like the first 15 minutes would be something. Second 15 minutes would be something. That's what this was. And so what the schmoo is, so the show was a repackaging of old episodes of the new Fred and Barney show. And the thing segments originally broadcast as Fred and Barney meet the thing. Combined with episodes of the new schmoo. So it's an entirely different character altogether. Despite the show's title, the segments remained separate and did not cross over with one another. The characters of Fred Flintstone, Barney Rubble, The Thing, and Shmoo were only featured together in brief bumpers between segments. Interesting little little trivia there. 
Oh, and then the final cartoon that was standout from this time is the Jetson. Also, I think that dog in the Jetsons was also a Great Dane. So big, big time for Great Danes. They are pretty awesome. Jetsons, I'm very familiar with the concept, the pop culture surrounding it. But I don't think I've seen an entire episode of the Jetsons either. Perhaps I should check it out. Okay, let's move on from TV into music. Because again, we're in 1979. We're not in the 80s. And the top 10 billboards for this week... October 19th, 1979. It has a very specific 70s vibe. The number one song was Don't Stop Till You Get Enough by Michael Jackson, Rise by Herb Albert, Sad Eyes by Robert John, Sail On by the Commodores, My Sharona by The Knack, which many of you might recall or maybe even remember more by it became more famous from the movie Reality Bites from 19. 19- 94. Great soundtrack, by the way. Number six song of this time was I'll Never Love This Way Again by Dionne Warwick. Number seven is Pop Music, and music is spelled M-U-Z-I-K by the letter M. Never heard of him. And when I looked it up, clearly a one-hit wonder, and it's not good. So it's got this new wave synthy sound to it, which apparently was becoming a thing at this time. There was an era, and many of them were one-hit wonders, apparently. So that's what that is. Number eight is Dim All the Lights by Donna Summer. Nine is Lonesome Loser by The Little River Band. And rounding out the top ten is After Love Has Gone by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Moving on to news and events from October of 1979. Pope John Paul II is the first pope to visit the White House, meeting with President Jimmy Carter in Washington, D.C. Howard Stern begins broadcasting on WCCC in Hartford, Connecticut. Do not recall him having that he went that far back to 1979. We also have the rock band Fleetwood Mac getting a star in Hollywood. And the debut of Boston Celtics rookie Larry Bird, as well as the debut the Los Angeles Lakers, Magic Johnson, like the first game. I thought it was really cool. It brought back uh, a couple memories, one of which is that we had a Commodore 64, a game, a basketball game that you played with a joystick. Pretty primitive, but I remember it being super fun. It was an eight-inch floppy disk. There were multiple types of floppy disks, but these were the big actual, they were actually flimsy and floppy. That was how we played this game. And the characters were Dr. J, a.k.a. Julius Irving and Larry Bird. Not to be confused by Magic Johnson, who is Irvin Johnson, spelled E-A-R-V-I-N. I think that's kind of confusing, so I wanted to point that out. And then those two, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, also might seem familiar to you. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend watching because I have found it fun to see these two in this era from the recent HBO show called The Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. It's quite good, actually. Ensemble cast includes John C. Riley, who I, I like him in anything. He's so good. Jason Clark, Adrian Brody, Quincy Isaiah, Sally Field, and Jason Siegel, among many others. So check that out if you haven't seen it. It's fun. And then we have Rain Gretzky scoring his first NHL goal in October of 1979. 
Mother Teresa of Calcutta was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. I do remember hearing about Mother Teresa a lot growing up. So then, very different from that, we have Bob Dylan making his only appearance on Saturday Night Live. And there was apparently a ton of nuclear testing at this time, both by the USSR and USA. So this is like Cold War era. Kind of crazy that I was reading about a lot of nuclear testing. Okay, so that sets the stage. We are October 1979. What a time. Let's now get into Skate Town, USA. The release date, as I had mentioned, was October 19th, 1979. It was rated PG. And the IMDb rating is a 4.8 of 10, which, I mean, I'm not surprised by that. The director is not well known. It's William A. Levy, who was also a writer. You may know the name Nick Castle, who was the shape of Michael Myers in the Halloween movies. He also wrote Escape from New York and the character of Snake Plissken, which is a nice little crossover with our other ultimate everyman, Kurt Russell. Then we also have Lauren Dreyfus, who is Richard's older brother as a writer on Skate Town USA. So that's not too shabby. And then you're going to be blown away by the cast. You got to watch this movie. We go through the cast credits and then we get an introducing Patrick Swayze as Ace. And he is very clearly the standard of this movie. He plays Ace, the leader of the West Side Wheelers skate gang. <laughs> yep. Then we have Greg Bradford, who plays Stan. And Stan is the movie's protagonist, and he's this pretty blonde guy from the valley. Comedian Flip Wilson plays Harvey, the roller rink, skating rink, slash club owner. Scott Bayo, who everyone knows from, for me, he's the most well-known from Charles in Charge, but he's been in a lot of other things. You all know who Scott Bayo is. He plays Richie, Stan's manager and friend. Yes, I said manager. We're in a world where there's a skating competition and one of the competitors in a skating competition has a manager. And then we get Marsha Brady herself in this, Maureen McCormick who plays Susan, Stan's sister. Additionally, we have Ron Palillo, who plays Frankie, Ace's skate gang's right-hand man. He's most known for playing the endearingly dim-witted Horshack character on Welcome Back, Cotter. And then rounding out the cast, some of you might know this guy, Bill Kirkenbauer. He plays the skate town doctor. Again, yes, we're living in a world where there's a doctor in-house at a roller rink. He plays Coach Lubbock from Growing Pains and its amazing spinoff, Just the Ten of Us, who I can't wait to cover that when it comes up in, in one of these episodes. But please let me know if you recall either of these and you remember Coach Lubbock. So the description of Skate Town USA, short and sweet, at a roller disco competition, two rivals find themselves becoming good friends while competing for a prize of $1,000 in cash and a moped. Oy, okay, so it was a really low budget. I couldn't find the exact number, somewhere between three and $4.5 million. But they didn't even make back their budget. So it was a success at the box office. It only made $2.35 million at the box office. But that doesn't even matter. We're just going to move on. We're going to get into why I think you guys should watch this. It was the first of three roller skating films around this time. 
But the others were far more well-known and successful, Roller Boogie and Xanadu. But this one was actually the first. And I'm assuming that most of you have not actually seen it, but you should. For the outfits and hair alone, we're talking bikini tops, short shorts, tube tops, and on men, feathered hair. But then you add in Patrick Swayze's first appearance in a movie where he kills it. Now it's a must-see. It is silly. It's a campy roller disco musical comedy. So please watch it, keeping that in mind. Then you'll have fun. It is supposed to be absurd. It's Nostalgia City. I mean, I wasn't even born yet, but I just found this to be so fun. It's a sensory overload in a good way, showcasing how immensely popular roller skating, roller dancing, roller disco, and everything that surrounds that, how popular that was at the time. The roller rink as a destination. Skate Town is a roller dance club and venue. It has a stage with multiple performers and bands throughout the night. A DJ booth, a snack bar, which kind of becomes a big part of the movie, actually. And the roller rink is the dance floor. So you have performers and bands performing and people are dancing, but on roller skates. That's the world we're in. So yes, it's kind of crazy. But like I said, it just shows the popularity of this kind of thing at the time. The music is awesome. I mean, it is a musical. But the music is great. I don't even really like musicals that much. There are some exceptions. This doesn't feel like your typical musical, but it does play amazing music of the time, the whole movie. The soundtrack's great. And a few standouts for me anyway were Shake Your Body Down to the Ground by the Jacksons, Anita Ward's Ring My Bell, and a cover of Rolling Stone's Under My Thumb. It's performed by Hounds. I don't know if any of you have heard of Hounds, but it's a cover of a Rolling Stone classic. Under My Thumb, such a good song. There's a song or two maybe by Earth, Wind, and Fire. So great soundtrack. The the whole movie has music in the background, but it's not your typical musical, if that makes sense. Okay. There is an insanely crazy cast of characters and a constant comedy of errors throughout this movie. Like I said, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. But it's supposed to be, you know, it's campy, like I had mentioned. Some of the cast of characters and the constant comedy of errors include, you have your your standard ditzy blonde bimbo type. She's the ticket counter girl. Then you have a super kooky DJ. There's an old man who is a little person who's clearly a regular at this place and is always flirting. Then we have... I don't know where this came from, but there's a nerdy newlywed couple and they win tickets to this competition in a game show and they are constantly having fish out of water type hijinks. Quite fun, but it's just like, where did that come from? There's an old, old man that's a comedian at the snack bar just rambling on to whoever will listen. And then Harvey, who's the owner, played by Flip Wilson. There's a point in time where he's dressed in drag and at first I'm like wait why is the owner dressed in drag but it turns out he's actually playing an entirely different character but it's he's it's his mother that's the character who he's playing and it has little to do with anything it's just thrown in we have a bumbling fat snack bar attendant 
who's constantly mowing down on hot dogs. No bun, just the hot dogs. He's just got like hands full of hot dogs that he's constantly eating. And he plays a part in some hijinks that we'll get into in a second involving this drunken drug dealer who comes up to the snack bar. So those two, the hot dog guy and this drunken drug dealer, there's a scene where there's an accidental grinding up cocaine into the pizza cheese. There's a counter, again, it's 1979, and they're actually like putting like a block of cheese into a grinder for the pizza. Somehow cocaine ends up in there. So the whole rest of the evening as they're grinding cheese to make the pizza, all of the patrons are getting high accidentally. It's hilarious. And the, the DJ talks about, oh, there's something funny in the pizza. Also, we're introduced to this set of four, I believe, dowdy, stick-in-the-mud types that are there as inspectors, of course. They just happen to show up this evening to inspect the place. And they, of course, are served some pizza. And then they get high. It's, it's a whole thing. It's funny. And then we have the West Side Wheelers. Yes, there's a skate gang in this movie. They have matching outfits, and it's amazing. They're black and purple. The jackets on the back or vests say West Side Wheelers. It's so awesome because Patrick looks amazing because most of the time he's wearing just his vest with no shirt underneath. Okay, let me, let me see if I can get this right. I don't think I'm exaggerating at all when I tell you he's literally one of the most beautiful specimens of a male human. I mean, you watch it, please. You guys watch it. Patrick Swayze. He's in this movie 26 or 27. I think you're going to enjoy some Patrick Swayze. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. This leads us to the competition that pits Ace, the reigning champ, Patrick Swayze, against Stan for the prize. There are other contestants in this contest, but Ace's goons come up with these schoolyard pranks to weed them out of the competition. So he's playing dirty. But we get down to two contestants. Stan, our protagonist, the blonde guy who Marsha Brady, a.k.a. Maureen McCormick, is his sister. So that's where we are. Those two. The singles portion, Ace, he's super sexy. He's got a serious face. It's very sensual and sexy. Whereas Stan's performance in the singles portion is very gymnastics forward. They're both impressive, but Patrick Swayze wins that portion. I'm sorry, Ace wins the singles portion. In his routine, remember how I was saying that there's a stage? There's ramps everywhere, apparently, also, because everyone's on skates. Ace even has a move where he jumps off of the stage onto the rink. And it's super reminiscent of the same move in Dirty Dancing. But it's on skates! Okay, so now we're in the pairs portion. And Ace, he and his partner, it's amazingly impressive and super sexy. It's like figure skating, but on roller skates, of course, mixed with sensual dancing moves, you know, like from Dirty Dancing and, and everything. It's really impressive to watch. And I'm still perplexed how this is even a thing, how it's possible on skates, all the agility, balance, strength, and precision that is involved. I should also mention that Patrick Swayze was actually a competitive roller skater back in the day. So this wasn't new to him, and he's also a dancer by trade. Still, it's so impressive. Anyway, 
So that's Patrick Swayze as Ace, his couple's portion. It's really good, like really good. And then Stan's portion, so his partner is supposed to be his sister, Susie, but she is MIA with Ace's buddy because he steals a car and they've eaten the pizza, so they're high. So he's now left without a partner. And there is a girl in a white dress that he sees earlier in the night that he's really taken by. And it turns out that that's actually Ace's sister. And she decides that she's going to step in now and be Stan's partner in the couple's portion. So they do their routine. It's fine. It's mediocre in my opinion. But for the movie's sake, Stan wins the couple's portion, despite Ace's being way better. But it's a movie. And so we have to now have a tie, right? This portion of the competition leads to the tie-breaking race down the Santa Monica Pier. So that's what they call it. Ace challenges Stan to a race down the pier. But it's not a race. What it is is a game of chicken on motorized skates to see who zags first to avoid plunging into the ocean at the end. So they have a button with brakes. Yep, that's this movie. So they both crash into the water. And since Stan is our protagonist, despite Patrick carrying the movie, he saves Ace's life in the water. I'm not sure why it's unclear why he can't just swim ashore. I don't know if he can't swim or whatnot, but for the movie's sake, Stan saves Ace's life. And yay, now they're friends. So that's how the movie ends. I know this sounds ridiculous, but the roller skating moves, the tricks in this movie, they're all very impressive. And so it's enjoyable for that aspect regardless of the plot of the movie. Okay, so that's a general what's going on in the movie. Like I said, Patrick Swayze's first role, you got to watch it. Some trivia, in case I haven't twisted your arm quite yet. So this film was the first roller disco movie of the 70s. It was released a few months actually before Roller Boogie. I think I had mentioned that already. After Patrick Swayze appeared in Dirty Dancing in 1987, so what is that, eight years later? The movie was nicknamed Dirty Skating by fans. I love this tidbit for a couple of reasons. A, the fans renamed it because there were fans of this movie. And it is Dirty Skating. His uh, performance, especially in the couples portion, is very sensual. It's super sexy. It is kind of like Dirty Dancing, but on skates. So I love that. Also, it's very reminiscent, for me anyway, of one of my favorites, Sylvester Stallone who's in a softcore porn, originally titled The Party at Kitty and Studs. This was before he made it. Um, he really needed some money. And then when he made it with Rocky, the fans didn't rename it, but it was re-released to capitalize on the success of Rocky. So The Party at Kitty and Studs was re-released after Rocky's success as The Italian Stallion. I'm sure a lot of you knew that, but it's fun. Then, in a similar vein, I guess, we have a cameo by Dorothy Stratton, who was a Playboy Playmate at the time. The August 1979 Playboy Playmate of the Month and 1980 Playmate of the Year, apparently. She plays the blonde at the food counter that's ordering pizza and it's taking forever. She's like, I'll take it frozen. She keeps having to reorder her pizza. And that super old comedian guy keeps telling her jokes and she's just like not having it. So that's... That's that. And then, unshockingly, apparently cocaine use was common during the filming. Kind of shows, actually, 
According to Maureen McCormick in her book, Here's the Story, Surviving Marsha Brady and Finding My True Voice, she writes, like a disco, there was a lot of cocaine being done on the set. Many people were open about it. That's not surprising, but I thought that was a fun little tidbit as well. Okay, Skate Town USA, I feel, captured something special with the look of it, the feel of it, and it's impossible to ignore its soundtrack. I do hope you consider watching Skate Town USA to see one of our everyman's first role. It's a doozy indeed. And let me know what you think of it. Comment on YouTube, Facebook, or you can always email me at retromadepodcast.gmail.com. So while the 70s disco era does look like a freaking awesome time to me, we must now return to the present day reality. Have a friend who might also enjoy this type of nostalgia? Share the show. And ratings and reviews are also very helpful. Wink, wink. Until next time, be kind, rewind.